1: podcast
2: with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, we didn't have a show last week. That was not planned. That was purely the result of circumstances, which I won't go into. I did record an episode for last week. Unfortunately, yeah, like I said, circumstances precluded it going out. And this week's episode is not that one either. So I'll have to hold tight. Basically, if it materializes this week, then I'll just stick it out as an extra episode this week, I think, depending on how the rest of the schedule goes. But yeah, we'll see about that. So apologies if you were holding tight, waiting for one. If you were in the Discord and saw me saying, yeah, it's going to be late, but it's going to be out, and then it did not arrive. Apologies. Sometimes these things happen. Well, they hardly ever happens, actually. But yeah, unfortunately... I'm okay. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna point the finger of blame anywhere. But yeah. Anyway, we're back on schedule now with that gap last week. But yeah, we are back here. Just a couple of things. It was actually not the best timing to miss it last week because I did actually have stuff to talk about other than the guest. So you may have noticed if you follow me on socials that we are doing a few shows to support the Hot Flush Twenty campaign. That is 20 years of hot flush recordings. That's the label I started 20 years ago. So if you take a look at my Instagram, you will notice a bunch of shows that have gone up. You can check them out at hf20.news slash events. They're all up there. There's going to be more going up too, but we wanted to get those ones on sale. So if you're not on the list, as it were, if you're not living in one of those list of cities that are up there, then hold tight because there is more to come. But if you want to get involved in any of those shows, then, yeah, tickets on that web page, hf20.news slash events. If you're a Patreon subscriber, then you get in free to any of those events. So just drop us a message if you want lists and um, plus ones to a reasonable extent is totally fine. So, yeah, hope to see you out on the road let me just try and remember where we're playing. Okay, so it's Tel Aviv, Bristol, Barcelona, Munich, London, Berlin, Copenhagen, Lyon, and Glasgow. So that's the first run. And like I said, there's more to come. So hold tight if you're not living in any of those places. But yeah, would be loved to see you out there. So yeah, get involved. Okay, right. This week is coming a new single from me. Again, as part of the Hot Flash training campaign, it's taken from the second mix in the series of four mixes that I've done. Mix two is called Post What Step, which is a thinly veiled reference to the slightly ridiculously titled Post Dubstep Genre. And the track that I've made, I've i have made two new tracks for this mix. So One of them is with Nikki Nair, which is coming out as a single on the same day as the mix. But the track that I'm releasing of mine, solo track, this Friday is called In Your Dreams, Get that via hf20.news out this Friday on all platforms. Hope you like it. Right, let's move on from this because um, you're probably here to hear some podcasting rather than just me prattling on about what I've been doing and what we've got coming up. So, this week is Post Human. In fact, it's Josh from Post Human because Post Human is actually a duo. It's him and his cousin, I believe. But, Josh Doherty has done all kinds of stuff in addition to his work on that name. So he's been part of Alternate. He's run the I Love Acids party for many years. And um, yeah, he's just an all-round kind of underground guy, I guess. In fact, that's what comes out in the conversation this week. He's an underground dude who, um, yeah, doesn't hold any sentimentality towards the mainstream dancing at all, I think it's fair to say, which is absolutely fine. I can identify with that. It's an enjoyable conversation this week, and I think you're going to enjoy it. We talk about lots of different stuff, from pandemic, promoting, to running underground parties in London in the early two thousands. The kind of electro techno crossover kind of scene, like Reflex Records and that kind of stuff, which we haven't really covered too much, in fact, on previous episodes of the show. So yeah, this was this was cool. You're going to like it. Okay, if you want to support us directly, then you can do so via Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There's a couple of different tiers, both of which are very reasonably priced, one of which gets you on the Hot Flush promo list. So any music that's coming out as part of the Hot Flush 20 campaign, you get for free as part of your subscription. So get on there and do it if you're not already. Otherwise, if you can't, you don't want to, that's also cool. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. That does help too, so please do it. Follow the Spotify playlist, there's a link in the show notes to that. And join us on the Discord, there's a private area for Patreon members, but there's also a pretty big not private area. So hotflashcorners.com slash Discord is the place to go to do that. And I'm going to stop prattling on, I have been prattling on for ages now. So without further delay, here is Josh from PostHuman. Josh PostHuman, welcome to the show, how are you doing sir? Yeah, not too bad. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm I'm good, thank you. Right, so, okay, for people who are not aware of your work, how, how do you sort of prioritise what you do these days? Because obviously you're a producer, but you also run parties and run a label. So how do you kind of think about it as a kind of introduction to what you do? Uh,
3: I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult one. Um, I mean, I guess first and foremost, I'm, the thing that I care most about is posthuman, human my own music. But... I tend to spend more of my time doing the record label and the parties. So, I don't know, I guess it just depends when I meet someone what the circumstances in you know well who who I need to who I need to be in any right. any given moment.
2: Okay, having spent the morning reading prior interviews with you and listening to your music and immersing myself a little bit in in what you've done over the past twenty years or so. Oh
3: man like, that that sounds that sounds like a
0: hard morning. <laughs> no,
2: no, it was um you're actually quite good at interviews. I always read a bunch of interviews in preparation for these episodes and some people are really aren't good at them but like there's definitely a few good quotes in every one that i read so so there's no no pressure on this one <laughs>
3: <laughs> but, <laughs> zero i think that the issue is zero filter
2: <laughs> right yeah, yeah i mean that that usually makes for a good idea but um i mean what, what i was going to say there was like i mean everything that you do musically revolves around a kind of rave aesthetic and specifically a kind of techno aesthetic but i mean one of the quotes that i pulled out from one of your interviews was basically you defining techno as something which is more of a mentality than a set of musical tropes so which in a sort of similar way to how people define punk i suppose
3: i think so yeah it's um i mean you know it's 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 such a it's such a broad it's such a broad word techno and you could go you could narrow it down to just the music form but you know it, it's a it's a broad term that kind of really encapsulates a lot of different stuff uh, dance music and particularly kind of the electronic dance music that, that we're all into now is really born out of not just being music but it's born out of a, a scene and a kind of uh, a, you know, a, a social position, and uh, there's there's a there's a lot of things that have built it into what it is. So I think you know, it's it's a term that is extremely broad, <laughs> and there's there's lots of different ways of approaching it. And um, and as you say, the punk aesthetic. I think my end of things is probably much more at the kind of DIY punk type. Uh, type end of things but there's you know there's everything all the way up to huge massive stadium big business techno things that is at the same level as kind of stadium rock or whatever
2: sure i mean so like how how much do you define what you do as being techno quote unquote kind of everything and uh nothing
3: at the same time i mean uh, rave is probably a, a closer word to to what i identify with if you see what i mean but um but uh you know it, it it all it all fits within within that world and and as as if if you've listened to a load of the post human stuff and you've probably seen that we do lots of different genres over the years and we we never did that kind of thing of getting different aliases or monikers for different styles of music we just kind of put everything out because it all feels like it's kind of under one umbrella to me whether it's you know electronica or rave or techno or acid or whatever it's all kind of in the same world um but I don't know if I feel ownership of it. That may be part of it, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess when I said ownership, I was sort of comparing how I feel about, or how I have felt over time with regards to dubstep, and how I felt when bad stuff happened to, to dubstep. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Okay. I
2: don't look.
3: I don't. I don't feel responsible if someone's a dickhead in techno. It's not my fault. <laughs> I mean, I mean, absolutely. I'm, I'm not. not I'm not in any way one of the kind of uh, creators or originators of of any scene really I'm you know I'm a I'm a secondary player in all of that stuff so I'm not I'm not like in a position to have been you know at say, at the founding of kind of dubstep as a scene, there was people that are involved in that and then everything that comes after that is going to point back to them as an influence. I'm, uh, I don't think I'm an influence on people. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I am influenced by people, but I'm, I'm, I'm a secondary part of that.
2: Okay, so a big part of the interviews that I read with you earlier this morning were concerned with the kind of, I guess the sort of early 2000s, electro slash techno scene in London and there were some really interesting parties which happened around then which I was sort of vaguely aware of at the time without really And I went to places like Electroworks and that sort of thing I went to some reflex nights and you know sort of dipped my toe in the water with that stuff but never really in a big way but there are so many Great stories that you tell about stuff like the tube station parties, oh, and it was it was an it was an amazing time. But let me just try and put that in a little bit of context, though, because I mean, you said that, like, I mean, quite reasonably, say that you don't feel yourself as a kind of originator of techno, but that period was influential on a lot of people so i mean how do you see yourselves as having arrived at that place to be putting on those parties in the first place
3: well we were we were even we were even late comers to that whole scene really i mean that that whole thing was kind of born out of the the scam reflex planet moo um, warp type thing in the late 90s and you had artists like plaid and b12 and apex twin and luke vibert and you know boards of canada all of those guys coming up and we were really fans of that music but you know we were we were a lot younger than all of those guys so we kind of came into it in 99 2000 when we first sort of started sent our demo to scam and got our first couple of gigs and stuff and we then kind of fell into that whole world and played some of the warp nash parties and we did our own events at the tube station and electroworks and stuff and there was a real bubbling scene in london at the time it was kind of focused around some record shops like small fish and there was sort of there were little venues that were doing stuff on weeknights where you could go and see really interesting acts and you'd bump into you know really established artists who were still kind of you know, hanging out with everybody, so there was this really amazing scene. But you know, we were we were latecomers to that as well. That that was already going on before we started.
2: <laughs> okay, but you definitely made your own mark on it and made your own contributions. I mean, I, I actually talked about this a little bit in my episode with Ned Beckett, actually, and like the development of Warp and the kind of um, effect that the label had on wider scenes and not just Warp like you know the, the affiliated acts and you know people who influenced each other during that period so was that your way into making music as well being into that kind of stuff
3: yeah well so i i was originally into kind of um electronic stuff like the orb and future sound of london and and so on in my in my early teen years um, and my older cousin rich who's the other half of post-human i mean i say older he's like nine months older than me but he he left uh, and moved to newcastle and worked in a record shop and he used to come down and bring me stuff like red planet records and anthony rother orks 88 and stuff so they kind of had influence of his sort of electro stuff and the uh, electronica that i was into and he told me about this label scam records who i then sent a demo to um and when they got back in touch and said do you want to come and do a show and do a record which was like 1999 i guess early 99 and i told rich and he said well you better let me get involved otherwise you'll fuck it up because you don't know what you're doing <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was kind of how we fell in fell into that world and then i moved down to london where richard had been living for about a year at that point and through record shops like small fish and going to events and going to parties at like the foundry and stuff we just met people and started doing our own little shows you know i i worked in a bar and we would hold little parties there and it really just kind of it fell into place with no plan or you know kind of uh overarching method we you know just kind of stumbled into doing stuff i mean we even stumbled into finding the tube station really quite randomly um and when we put the parties on there, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. But uh, you know, I mean, I think all the all the young DIY stuff is like that. No one, no one has a clue.
2: Yeah, and that can add quite a lot to it. So just before we get into that, all that stuff. Um, I mean, how did you start making music in the first place? Like, was there were you playing in bands and stuff? That's kind of a common. That was certainly my kind of route in. But like, how did you get to like being able to send out demos? Well, I was in.
3: Um, I had, a, I had a friend when I was 12 called Henry Gronendijk, Um and he and I had our first ever band when we were teenagers, Heavy Metal, um, and he was the talented musician, and I was just his mate who would come along and help do things, if you see what I mean. Um, and this was when I lived in Australia as a kid, and uh, he was the one that really got me into music and wanting to be in bands and wanting to do music. So then when I moved to the UK... Um, my dad had like a kind of bric-a-brac um, antique-type shop, and he'd managed to um, trade with somebody, uh, like a pair of speakers for an, a keyboard and a and a drum machine and a four-track. And so he gave them to me, and it was like, well, you know, you can mess about with these if you want. Um, and so that was kind of my first... You know, it was literally just I had some bits of equipment, and I had to start working out how to use them. And there was no internet, and this is in Darlington in the northeast. There was no scene. There was nowhere anywhere, anywhere to learn this kind of stuff from. But so I just started buying cables and tapes and you know, guitar pedals and and literally messing about, trying to somehow mimic the music that I was hearing being made by people who had much more professional kit.
2: Right. <laughs> had you had, like, any kind of formal instruction in music at that point? Like, had you learned an instrument? I mean, what were you playing in the band? Nah. Uh, I had a few
3: lessons to play guitar, and I could play guitar and bass a little bit when I was younger. Um, and then I had a few lessons on the drums as well. But, you no, know, I'm you know, I don't have any gradings or anything like that you
2: know i'm i am a, a, a hobbyist at best with uh, musical instruments okay but i mean it sounds like then you could have like got into it in a fairly intuitive way is that, is that a fair observation
3: yeah i think just just experimenting and trying to it's always just been kind of trying to mimic other stuff you you hear you hear something and you just kind of go how on earth is that done and then you mess around until you work out some kind of semblance of it yourself um really everything was done through mimicry and wanting to be like future sound of london or orbital or you know what have you
2: yeah i mean i guess that's a kind of a common approach to getting started right i mean what you just described is more of a kind of a, it's more of a
3: kind of like engineering I'm, approach. I'm sure it is i'm sure you know everyone that picks up a guitar listens to led zeppelin and wonders how they make that noise and yeah you know. okay
2: sounds like more of a kind of i guess sort of reverse engineering approach in how you talk about it there rather than a i don't know i mean is that a fair observation well i, I guess it's different it's different now It's
3: different now if you were going to get into producing electronic music because there's the internet and you can go onto a video and it'll teach you how to use something. And there's a you you can get you know software that does everything that a studio can do. But you go back 25, 30 years ago, there was not really any rule books and there wasn't any guides. And if you were a you know a teenage kid in a small town, there was nowhere to learn this stuff from. So you just had to kind of figure it
2: out, yeah. Okay, I mean, the the kind of YouTubeification of music production is something we've talked about on the show before and i mean i do think obviously it's an amazing resource in in some respects but it also uh there's a side to it which i guess can be a little bit too prescriptive so do you see that as having been an advantage that you had, like versus kids coming into it today i think
3: i think it's there's there is two ways of looking at that the you know the advantage now is that you can do anything straight off you know, with minimal equipment, and you can learn everything. The information's all there, which is fantastic. You know, but at the same time, the limitations of of, of uh, what we had kind of enforced creativity and, and and problem solving in a different way. And there was there was magic, man, because you you know, stuff was still about discovering things. Things were still. You couldn't get hold of thing, many things. You couldn't find out about stuff. So when you did, it was like, it was absolutely magic and glorious. Whereas now, you know, there's not really any mystery to mm-hmm. it, if you see what I mean.
2: Yeah. I mean, that carries with it, like the lack of mystery term is, has been put forward before on the show and it kind of carries with it a bit of sort of negative connotations. I mean, like, do you see that as being necessarily bad? Not, not negative, just different. Just different. I mean, you know, I kind of, as as I say, you know,
3: kids now that are producing music are not going to have to struggle <laughs> working out how to do stuff. So they'll just be able to get their ideas out there straight away. And there's such a, a wealth of music to be able to pick from and listen to and, and you know, be influenced by um, but on the flip side you do lose a little bit of the magic it's you know it's it's not better or worse it's just different
2: sure so i mean how did you get to a point then where you from a psychological perspective like was there a barrier that you had to get over before you could start sending your music out like was there a point in which you started to feel yeah okay this is something that i want to play to people because obviously getting from a point where you're just trying to mimic no, stuff no i was yeah you know,
3: the- i was i was i was the most annoying bastard on the world i'd be forcing my music on people all the bloody time <laughs> People would come round my house and I would deliberately put my music on really loud and annoy it. No, I I was always extremely annoying (laughs) And, uh, and cocky with that kind of stuff. So, yeah, never a
2: shrinking violet. So was it like a surprise... When scam got back to you, or was it just something that you were expecting?
3: Oh, it was a massive surprise. But uh, you know, I I I didn't I didn't really know about the scene or how record labels worked or any of that kind of stuff. Rich, Rich knew about that stuff, but I was just oblivious. I just liked, you know, electronic music and and doing stuff. And all I wanted to do was to play shows. I mean, it's all I still really want to do is travel and meet people and play shows. So you know, I didn't I didn't really know about how how everything worked. I didn't know, you know what what the decorum was you know or anything about contracts or
2: any of that kind of stuff i just you know i sent music and hoped people would be into it so what was the decision to move to london was that directly related to the development of the music
3: well kind kind of i mean because i was also i was also an absolute fucking idiot um i guess i must have been 20 20 years old um and I was doing things like not paying my rent and getting hoofed out of houses and sleeping on people's couches and floors and stuff and not turning up to work because I'd been out all night partying with pals and that kind of stuff. So really, I was living in Manchester, but I'd burnt a lot of bridges, <laughs> used up all my favours, um, and so when Rich said, look, come down and we'll do some more music down here, we'll you know, write write some more, I just... Not only did I want to go to London to, to write music with Rich, but I kinda needed to because I didn't have anywhere else to stay in Manchester
2: anymore. Okay. Once you got down there, was putting in your own shows just a logical step then? Or was yeah. that something which would yeah? It 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 happened it happened
3: really quickly. I um I got a job in a bar round the corner from us, a um, place called New Bar, which had previously been in a venue called Disgracelands which was famous in the 90s had like you know Andy Weatherall and stuff were residents there um, and uh I was working in the bar and I don't I hadn't been there for more than a few weeks I think when I told the owner that I wanted to put on a night and and bring loads of people in and by that point as well we'd started kind of DJing in the bar a little bit anyway it had this cool DJ booth that was up above the bar and you could reach down and grab drinks off the bar it was quite good fun so it really just morphed into doing parties pretty quickly, um, and yeah, we we started doing them every month there. I guess from the very late nineties, no, must have been early two thousands was when that started, through to through to early two thousand and one when the place closed down because the owner was uh, had a terrible cocaine habit essentially.
2: And what what were you playing? What music was getting played?
3: Ah, I mean, Rich and Bruce would be DJing techno and electro i'd be playing um idm stuff more you know i was much more into kind of the weirder wonkier things rich and bruce were very much more the techno and electro heads so it was you know it was a mixture but at that point it would be quite normal to play a couple of drum and bass tracks and then to play some electro and then some techno and some house and then an ambient track you know it was like we didn't (laughs) we didn't really have a particularly clever approach at um at you know Building sets or building a vibe or you know any continuity, we literally just played music that we liked pretty haphazardly. Yeah,
2: I mean, what had been your history in DJing at that point? Was this like the first kind of regular DJ gig that you'd had? I, I
3: was I was not a DJ. I, I I was always I was always the live music person. I you know I I would have the laptop and like some you know keyboard and bits plugged in and I'd be playing. Tracks and mixing them up on other, you know, I'd be playing stuff off bloody Winamp and then playing stuff out of Fruity Loops and stuff. I was, um, I was not the DJ at all. Rich, Rich was the DJ and had the vinyl collection and the decks. And Bruce, our pal, was also a vinyl DJ. But I was, I was the hardware guy. So, I mean, I, you know, I really, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was a terrible DJ.
2: Still not that great. <laughs> right. I mean, I think it does take a while to get the hang of. To be honest, I mean, I think like the. Well,
3: yeah, I mean, especially back then, you know, there were CDJs, but they were kind of like side-on slot things with a kind of rubber dial on it, you know, not like not like there is now. They were actually harder to use than than um than vinyl, and uh and sounded like shit. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it was just normal. Everywhere was just vinyl still at that mm-hmm. point, and I didn't have a massive collection to be honest.
2: Yeah, 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 and um. see god yeah the early cdjs were fucking terrible weren't they i remember oh my god
3: For, for me i just remember cdjs was what those kind of like um guys that would go and do pop music in a local pub or weddings or you know that kind of thing that that weren't mixing that were just playing track for track they had the cdjs you couldn't mix on them, you know, that you could maybe just fade between them. But they they weren't for kind of dance music, if you see what I mean. They were like for,
2: you know, other things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember trying to mix on those things and sort of getting to the stage where I was all right at it. But then like, you know, when they had, when the kind of technology moved on a little bit, it was like, okay, right, I can see this is going to take over now like, quite easily. Because I mean, as soon as it became like noticeably, Easier to get the hang of than vinyl. Then it was just, it was. I guess it was just game over at that point. But hang on a sec. How did you start doing the tube station parties?
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a big, it's a big jump, isn't it, from from doing the the, the little events in Newbar in North London to suddenly doing the the tube station parties, which were massive, really. Um, not massive in you know capacity, but they were like a big deal. Um, so rich and i were we were both uh, this okay this sounds really odd but and and incoherent but it does make sense okay so it comes back to making sense rich and i were also massive fans of coil and coil had a track called um the lost rivers of london um And from that, we both got interested in what the Lost Rivers of London were, and we'd started reading about, you know, the the Walbrook and the Shoreditch and the Fleet and all of these rivers that used to be in London, because London was a delta, and then they got buried. And from that, that led us into reading about all the kind of weird stuff that was underneath um, London, including this tube station, Oldwich, um, on the Strand, which was a tube station that was built in the... Uh, late 1800s I guess it was kind of a part of the Piccadilly line and it still had all the really beautiful look of it the old tiles and wooden ticket booths and everything and then it had been closed in the 70s or the 80s I guess Um, and I think it might have actually been a girlfriend of mine at the time managed to get hold of the guy that was the caretaker of it and we went down to speak to him and said, look, we want to do a party here because this place looks amazing. And he was like, no, no, we don't do parties in, in this place, you know, not, not at all. And then we sat down with him and started telling him all about how we knew all the history of the place and we knew the history of everything that had been built in the area underneath the city and all that kind of stuff. And he realised that we were not just one in a venue, that we really loved the place and we loved the history behind it. So he agreed to let us do an event there as long as he stayed to over, oversee it um but we also found out that he really liked whiskey so we'd buy him whiskey he would tank a bottle of whiskey he would fall asleep and he would just sleep through and we would get to run this party in this in this tube station and then we'd have to kind of pack it all up and clear it up all in the next morning um and then uh, and then he'd send us on our way so that was kind of how we ended up doing it um i worked in a and another different pub at that point in North London. And the the guy that did the sound engineering there, he knew someone that had a sound system. And we'd also spoken to the crew that ran the Wang parties at the premises, which were like the best club night in London for us at the time. And they'd helped us get a hold of people to book and to get things, you know, hire things like decks and stuff. In so it was a really kind of, all hands on deck with all of our pals helping out and, you know, hiring vans and driving round, you know, to get all the things that we needed to do these events, which were very, very lo-fi. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was really just kind of this odd mashup of people um, and then ended up in these parties in this tube station, which then celebrities started turning up at.
2: Uh, right. Okay. So hang on a sec. How many people came to the first one, roughly? four or five hundred
3: I guess it wasn't that big you know it wasn't wasn't massive in terms of capacity
2: big enough though right I mean that's still like like a decent
3: big enough yeah and because there wasn't a bar in there what we would do is we would go to like Costco and buy loads and loads of beers and then you know we'd go to to buy some plastic bins and fill them with ice and we legally weren't allowed to sell them because we didn't have a liquor license. So we would sell tokens out of one ticket booth that could be exchanged <laughs> for beers in the other ticket booth. So you'd have to go and buy tokens and walk around to the other one and exchange them. And that was the the way around getting, you know, with a liquor license and stuff.
2: So <laughs> yeah, I mean, were there any other administrative hoops that you needed to, to jump through to get this thing going? I mean, obviously if you're doing stuff like tokens then you've got your you're know, keeping half an eye on the authorities but how much of this was a uh, just a like sailing under the radar kind of approach
3: it was it was almost entirely sailing under the radar i mean you know there was loads of stuff that we were doing that was probably deeply illegal um you know it was it was really but you could still kind of get away with that stuff at that point um in central london <laughs> You know, this is like 2001 through to 2004 that we did the parties there, um, and yeah, they were they were they were closer to they were closer to kind of a warehouse squat vibe than they were to a, an organised club night.
2: If you see what I mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, did you attract the attention of the authorities to any extent? We did get we did get um, the
3: council turned up at one of them they turned up really early and there was kind of arty stuff happening and not many people in and they kind of uh, they went oh okay this is all right." and I think they maybe thought that we were a little bit that it wasn't a rave because we you know because early on there wouldn't be rave music there'd be kind of like IDM and ambient and stuff being played so I think they thought it was like a little bit more arty and just kind of studenty thing and they let us go with it I mean if they turned up you know when everything was in full swing later on we probably would have been shut down but um and then, obviously, yeah. What time did you run until? Oh, like three in the morning, four in the morning, something like that. We didn't have, I didn't, and we didn't have things like temporary event notices or anything. I, I don't really know how we managed it, to be
2: honest. That's the thing, because I mean, I had a brief discussion a couple of weeks ago on here about the underground scene in New York, uh, of which I played a few shows with mostly black market membership and they were able to run events just mad events like in Manhattan as well as as Brooklyn basically by paying off the right people but you you didn't have to get into any of that stuff I take it.
3: We didn't yeah we didn't have any of that I guess because it's bang in the centre of town you know, it's on the Strand, right in the middle of the tourist district. There's no... It's it's not like you're trying to do a warehouse out in Hackney and there's gangsters and stuff in the local area. We were just... We were so completely off everybody's radar. There wasn't even, you know, really pubs or other venues or anything nearby. So, you know... the And there's not really, you know, much kind of walking trade at that particular area at that time of night. So, you know, we were really... It was just too weird... thing to do for anyone to notice
2: but as you mentioned you started attracting celebrity attention what did that entail
3: yeah well that was that was weird I mean not like massive celebrities but you know we had a few people kind of turning up at them because we had we had some interesting lineups like we had we had one where we had um like goldfrapped DJing earlier on and and we had all the kind of warp records crew in playing and the uh you know there was there was some sort of cool lineups and there would be People that you'd recognize from the music scene or kind of low-level actors and stuff turning up. Like, um, there was one time because one, the, one, either the first or the second one that we did and we tried to hire a security team and they didn't turn up. <laughs> so me and a couple of friends basically put on black coats and went and stood out the front and pretended to be security while Bruce was like ringing round firms trying desperately to get a couple of, you know, hired bouncers to come down. You know, this is this is the this is the level of lack of preparation that we had. Um, so I remember standing on the door, and I'm pretending to be just, you know, the bouncer, and my pal, who's, like, basically a regular at the pub that I was working at, is, you know, also in a black coat, because we were just the two tallest people there. <laughs> and um, uh, what's-his-name? Recy Fans, who'd just done you know notting hill and was a big star at the that time turned up with um with like a little entourage and he kind of walked up to me he's like hello mate i'm on the guest list i know the owners type thing and i was like uh no you don't it's 20 quid in each <laughs> and there was a bit of do you know who i am mate do you know what i am and i was like it, I, it doesn't matter it's 20 pounds each please." And so they, they paid cash for their whole little crew to come in, walked around, swanned around for 10 minutes, and then realised it was, you know, weird electronic music being played in a freezing cold fucking tube station,
2: <laughs> and they left. <laughs> really <okay>. good. <laughs> I mean, that's got to be satisfying.
3: It was. It, it, was, it was good. Easy, easy hundred quid. Yeah,
2: nice. So I wanted to ask, I mean, you did various other events around this time too, and you alluded to doing a party at Pentonville Prison in one of the things that I read but without any details so what was that
3: Bruce and Rich did that one are they I, okay how does that work Bruce is kind of Bruce is our kind of um, Bruce is our Bez he's our long term pal DJ uh, he does loads of spoken word stuff on on post human things he's a he's a kind of really interesting fun arty guy that just manages to he. he you know you, everybody has a pal that is the person that can find the party Bruce Bruce is our guy that can find the party, and if there isn't one, he starts the party. Um, he's awesome, awesome fun. And I don't know how he'd done it, but he'd managed to get um, in touch with the people that ran Pentonville Prison, and inside the prison grounds there's like a a function hall thing,
2: and um, he put on a party in mean- there. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's got to involve some... Some kind of uh, administrative obstacles, right? On,
3: honestly, I, honestly, I don't know. I don't know how it was done. It was probably the same kind of level blag as when we were doing the tube stations, but I, I wasn't in London at that point when that one happened. I missed that party, so because I'd I'd gone to Edinburgh for a while in the in like two thousand and three, so so I missed I missed out on that one.
2: And um, the other one that I picked out was the Ginglick venue in West London, which I'd completely forgotten about. But was really fucking awesome. Oh, well, see, I
3: that's that's a that's a later that's a later story because that's after. So the tube station parties and then um, the stuff at the spits and the stuff at what Bruce did at the Pentonville prison and then after that we did some events at the Coronet in um, in South London in Elephant, which has just been knocked down actually, big old cinema. And then after that, I parted ways with um, Rich and Bruce and Seed Records and started Isle of Acid, and that is where Ginglet came into play. That was where Isle of Acid got its first residency, and that's like 2007, 2008, so it's a little bit later on.
2: Yeah, a few years later, but I mean, Ginglet was was a great venue, and I, like I said, completely forgotten about I, it. So I honestly think...
3: Honestly, think if Ginglick had been in the East End, it would be held in the same reverence as Plastic People as the best fucking venue in London for me. It was the perfect layout.
2: Yeah. So, can you just describe it to people, anyone who didn't have the pleasure of going? Like, what-
3: oh, it was—it's amazing. So, it was a—it was an an abandoned public toilet underneath the park. So you literally went into the park in shepherd's bush shepherd's bush green and there is just some stairs going down under the ground that's it and you go down and there's like this foyer with a ticket booth and off one and there's three rooms off it and one room is a bar one room is a lounge and one room is a dance floor and it's like low ceilings and it was all painted red and it was really just it was just amazing there was like a a gorgeous turbo sound rig on this on the on the dance floor but having the bar separate meant that there wasn't that kind of crazy screaming at the bar staff thing and then there was this tiny little lounge that was all mirrored so it felt massive but it was actually tiny and the place only held like 200 people but it was it was fucking glorious i loved that venue
2: yeah, I mean, I was just trying to remember what nights I would have gone to there, because I definitely went there a few times, and I just can't remember what what was going on there that I that would have brought me down there. Um, how often do you, did you guys do nights there? Well, we had, we had a
3: monthly residency there from 2008 to 2014.
2: So every month for six years. Yeah, wow. Okay, well, that's, that's a good amount of time. What were the other notable nights that were there that were going on regularly? Everything, and pretty much everything else at Ginglik was
3: kind of um, run in-house. I think we were one of the only sort of really established um, club nights that was running there separately. I mean, there was a few other things, but they they really varied in music that they did there. They had live bands, and they had, like, um, comedy nights, and, and like... Um, you know, cabaret stuff going on in there and all sorts. And then on the weekends, there'd be like a drum and bass night one night and then a techno night the other night and stuff. You know, it was really, it was very varied, but it was all, it was because the actual owners, Cole and Tammy, they really, really knew their stuff. Cole was a DJ and produced music as Sonosis and was deeply involved in the whole scene. And Tammy was like, uh, knew all about the performing stuff and comedy and the cabaret and that so th- even the ownership of the place you know right to the very top were totally invested in everything there it's a bit like bit like Corsica Studios where you go to the top and you go to Adrian who owns it and he loves the music and loves everything it was there was no there was no one involved that was just there for the business side of things if you see what I mean it was like it was all about the art and the music from the top down so it was just perfect
2: yeah I mean that's what you that's what you want from a from a venue, I think in particular, like it really makes a big difference.
3: It's the dream. I mean, I, it's one of those things that you don't realise what you've got till it's gone. I, I, I miss that place so much. It was
2: just the best. Mm. So, what was the, what led you to breaking off and, and starting to do those separate parties? What was the process, down there and then what was the premise of I Love Acid?
3: We'd done, um, we'd done a couple of events in the Coronet, um, which was quite a big step up from the tube station parties and the other things that we were doing at places like the spits and the rhythm factory um coronet was much bigger capacity a couple of thousand i think if you used the whole place um and so we did an event there with like uh mode selector and b12 and neil landstrom and stuff and that went really well And then we did another event that we kind of bit off more than we could chew, and we had like um, Surgeon and Regis doing British Murder Boys, and we got Phil Hartnell to come down and do an Orbital DJ set because their Orbital had broken up at that point. We had the Grid playing live, and we had like um, it's just like a massive, massive lineup, huge you know huge number of people. On the bill and using all three different rooms, and then we were showing cine- film stuff in the cinema screen at the same time as the kind of chill out room, and we just didn't sell enough tickets. <laughs> we lost like so much
2: money, <laughs> um, like thousands and thousands. We lost. Let me just interrupt you there. <laughs> as he was saying that, I was thinking. I was thinking to myself, this requires like professional kind of promotional. Skills there. So was so, so was that just a case of like you know the reality dawning?
3: Yeah. Well, you know we 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 were still we were still kind of using our DIY ethos of you know just doing flyers and handing them out to people in clubs and stuff. This is the you know it's two thousand and six, so there's no real good social media. There's a bit of there's a bit of MySpace, but there's you know it's still flyers handed out to people and you know all that kind of thing. And the the DIY ethos just didn't reach high enough to sell a couple of thousand tickets. Um, And we lost loads of money. And then we all had massive fights with each other about the money afterwards, which is what happens when you're like 26, 27 years old and you lose three months rent. (laughs) Um, And that's so we all kind of fell out. And that's when I then decided to go my own way and do something different. Um, So that was after that, that I then called Luke Vibert and said, can we do a party themed around your track isle of acid and we'll just get a load of different acid acts in and we'll do it down at corsica studios it was like stepping back and doing something that was a little bit more in tune with what i wanted to do at that point
2: okay so did you say the first one was at corsica
3: yeah yeah the first the first isle of acid was at corsica studios and the second one and then after that we started the residency at ginglic
2: okay so who played the first one? Oh, um
3: Jesus, uh, Mike Paradinas, Egg Bam Yassi, um, loads of just friends like uh, Chris Moss Acid and Doubtful Guest and people like John Power and stuff. You know, Mully I think played it. So we didn't. What I did is instead of doing flyers, I printed CDs. <laughs> Literally got a bunch of CDs manufactured with a bunch of Acid tracks on them, and then the lineup and the date on the flyer, on the on the on the C D like a flyer if you see what I mean. And then they went into the hyponic flyer packs and they got handed out at like I think block weekend and stuff. You know, that was that was, <laughs> that was the way to promote the party. And it was and the party was really good. Loads of people turned up and it was really good fun and then somebody spilt a drink into the mixer. You know, one of those um Function 1 formula sound ones, you know, purple ones, really, and that cost me so much money to get fixed, and I lost, so I ended up losing
2: money. (laughs) Right, okay. Okay, Flyer Packs, that just brought the 2000s just rushing back to me, just that term.
3: I know, man, I miss Flyer Packs, they were so good.
2: So, for someone who's younger, who doesn't remember that era, can you just give me a snapshot of how you... Had to promote back then, and you just touched on it a little bit. Yeah, you'd come
3: out of a club, and somebody would be there with like a a box of of baggie, of baggies, like little plastic bags, and it would and the bag would be full of different flyers from all sorts of different nights. There was like the Don't Panic packs, I think, and there was the Hyponic ones. Those were the kind of the two that we would aim map, but there was lots of different firms that were doing these flyer packs, and you would want to grab one of these packs because it would have stickers in it and it would have flyers for loads of nights. Because that's the only way you found out about stuff, because there was no social media, and if you didn't go to record shops to look at the posters on the walls, how would you find out that parties were happening? So you needed these flyer packs. Um, they were great, and you know, then you you collect all the good ones because the artwork was amazing. Stick them up on the wall. You can't do that with. with Instagram flyers anymore
2: (laughs) yeah I mean that's that's the thing isn't it because that's a real incentive as well to make cool looking artwork and sort of distinctive flyers and that's the whole sort of subculture
3: yeah I mean, it was it was a whole it was a whole industry for twenty years, wasn't it? You know the the, the great artwork flyers because people would want to collect them. But when I was younger, I, I I was collecting like the the flyers from the orbit. You know, the round ones. Those those were the, my favourites.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's never really occurred to me before that that whole thing was a sort of subculture in and of itself. You know. Oh, um, I had them. I had them all stuck up on my walls in my
3: in my in my first bed set when I left home. You know, an entire wall covered in club night
2: flyers sure I mean the way you just described starting I Love Acid was like very much keeping on with that sort of DIY approach to it is that fair
3: (laughs) I still have that DIY approach I'm in my 40s and I'm still
2: (laughs) right but I mean has there been well I'm assuming there's been a development over the years right because you can't keep doing something if you're completely I was going to say disorganised but maybe that's a little bit unfair but like what has the process been I mean to the extent that there has been a development in it
3: it is Honestly, it is still pretty haphazard. I'm still, you know, I'm still very much just like doing doing everything by the seat of my pants um, in terms of contacting venues and contacting artists to play and doing the flyer. You know, I still do all the flyer art myself, and I still you know do all of the promo myself really and you know it's still it's still very very much the same approach and it's gotten bigger and then it's gotten smaller and bigger and smaller as things have you know waved in and out of fashion um, you know I, I it's really still the same kind of haphazard approach i think this this is this is why i love acid is still about the same size as it was originally you know i i i'm not the kind of person that was going to start something and turn into an empire it's not you know i would never be a defected or a warehouse project or anything i'm i i just don't have that kind of um business mentality of building something into a bigger bigger thing and increasing it and getting bigger and becoming more established i am just still the same idiot as i was
2: when i was 21 sure but i mean i think you know doing something for that long means there's going to be inevitably kind of peaks and troughs to the interest in it like as you as you ref- just referred to right so i guess it's a case of going with the flow then to an extent and just you know being able to you know take advantage of the of the upticks and then not getting too deeply damaged by the downticks i suppose is that a fair way of saying it i
3: I'd, I'd, I'd say so i mean the, i mean the thing is i've been doing this long enough to know that you know you you go up and you come back down and you go back up again and it's you know there's there's no one goes up and stays up if you see what i mean and i don't get particularly bothered about that stuff anymore um i used to you know i used to get sort of wound up about things and worry about stuff but uh, i don't i don't really give a shit about that anymore
2: <laughs> yeah yeah fair enough I'm um, so okay with that in mind then like coming out of the pandemic period to what extent was that just part of that wider fluctuation was that significantly different Well, the, the pan the pan so the pandemic is it's it's a funny one so
3: in 2019 had like the the busiest year for I Love acid in terms of it being in lots of different venues in different cities and you know in europe and all across the uk it was like it was just going crazy and then we won the um the DJ Mag Award for the best club night in the UK in 2019. And everything just went mental. And I was getting emails from every bloody booking agent and venue and stuff. And I probably, I mean, I had ev- almost every weekend or every other weekend of 2020 booked up um, everywhere, kind of wanted an I Love Acid night. And then uh, the pandemic happened and it all just stopped. Um, and I guess because I didn't spend enough time on... T- social media doing tiktok videos and streams and stuff um by the time we came out of the pandemic everyone had forgotten about isle of acid <laughs> and all of all of the people that had wanted to to do parties just went not even you know i mean a lot of them were just the venues had gone or the people had moved on or what have you but it really kind of went back to to square one so i you know went back to kind of doing a bunch of small ones around the uk myself again if you see what i mean um So the first year coming out of the pandemic, I think I did 14 parties all in the UK and they were, they were great. They were, you know, it was really, really good, but it was, it was different to, to how it was before the pandemic. And then, um, started working with Brian in different in what way the crowds were different, um, older and younger, if you see what I mean.
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: so, okay. I mean, Isle of acids always had a fairly mixed crowd. But um, what I found coming out of the pandemic was that everyone was under twenty-five or over forty.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I definitely there seemed to have been a a very obvious injection of youth into crowds generally. Yeah.
3: But um, also a but also a drop off of the middle ground, and then the older people, I guess, because you know they really realised what they were missing. <laughs> <laughs> started going out again. Um, so yeah, you know it, it was, and you know it was quite. It was kind of a bit scary at first. Everyone was a bit nervous. I mean, I, I remember the first one that I did back, which was in Liverpool, and I was fucking petrified. I wore a mask all the way through my DJ set, and then ran outside as soon as I finished. And then I'd like worried for five days afterwards whether I was going to have COVID. Um, you know, it was it was a it was a pretty strange time coming back. Kind of a mixture of. Being cathartic and also scary at the same time. When did you do the first one? Oh, like 4 days after freedom day, July 2021. Yeah, right. So, I'd only had my first I'd only had my first jab like a week beforehand as well. So, I was terrified.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it was very strange, wasn't it? Cuz I mean, I didn't really I don't know, I didn't have that sort of like visceral kind of fear by that stage. I think I'd just been kind of worn down by it. I definitely, like at the very start of lockdown, I definitely had that kind of uh, sort of like apocalyptic feeling about it. I
3: did, yeah. I fell out with loads of people. I got, I was, I was really worried that it was going to be absolutely devastating. And, you know, I mean, it kind of was in a way. So... But uh yeah, yeah, I mean it I, was
2: well, it was without f- like feeling like the worst of those predictions and those those kind of scenarios, right, so I think it was well, the people who feel like it was a big nothing burger i I mean I don't agree with that, but I can kind of see why people some people take that kind of a view you know i think I think the
3: thing is that i i I never expected vaccines to happen so quickly, and uh I think you know it really um brought everything back a lot a lot faster um which and made it all not not as bad so which makes it easier for people to go well look it wasn't a big deal you know we were all back up and again in 18 months and it's like well you know so anyway I don't want to talk about the bloody covid pandemic but uh but yeah you know it was it was a it was an odd time and I definitely fell out with a few people during covid
2: <laughs> so yeah you kind of mentioned the effect in passing that coming out of the pandemic and had on venues. But I mean, as someone who does lots of events in different places around and, you know, dealing with venues direct, what has the effect been? I mean, like, clearly lots of places are shut down.
3: One of the interesting things that's come out of the, of, of the pandemic is there's been a massive sea change in uh, a lot of the, the lower level independent um, parties and bookers. You know all the big, all the big, big massive companies and the big massive venues and the big massive festivals all kind of carried on, which which, you know we all noticed that the same lineups popped up again straight away when all of that reopened. But what we've seen is in all the underground and all of the smaller venues has been a massive change, and I think there was a lot of people that. Because people at that level are generally living paycheck to paycheck. There's not, uh, you know, so when when the pandemic happened, they just had to stop working in those venues and stop working doing that stuff and go and do other things. And then when things start up again, you have new blood coming in. So I think, you know, I've really noticed that, particularly at the kind of smaller independent level, there's been a whole new um, generation of Parties of bookers of you know venues and of the DJs and the musicians that are playing at those things. So there's there's been a, a massive change there, which is probably one of the major reasons why there's also been that huge change in the kind of vibe of music that's getting played everywhere.
2: Yeah. Okay. I mean, you kind of hinted there at what that was down to, and like you know what we we're talking about with the changing of the audience as well. So I mean, yeah. Is, well, yeah, is that- you've got a you've got a there's there's a there's a there's a gap. Isn't
3: there? So there's not the the normal um, ebb and flow and education of people into the scene. There's like there's a hard gap, and then a whole bunch of new people. So uh, you know there's a lot of preconceptions and stuff are, are thrown aside, and it's it's approached differently.
2: Yeah. Okay. So can you point out the nature of that change? A little bit. I mean, like we talked on the show before about the changing nature of the music that gets played now. But like, what other things that you've noticed?
3: I mean, the the big thing I've noticed in um, in Europe particularly is um, kind of uh, house and techno is um, not being played out as much as it was, um, and it's this kind of much faster, harder, trancier techno at the moment. But you know, I mean, that that things always fall in and out of fashion anyway. When when I started doing I Love Acid, there wasn't really that many people doing kind of acid house nights in 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 London, not the kind of stuff that, that we were doing. And then it became massively in fashion and I would see the same people that were playing at Isle of Acid playing elsewhere and then it fell out of fashion again and came in. So you know, the the change in, in in a music style is is natural anyway. But I guess because there was no um it didn't it didn't blend in, it just came in hard and new because there'd been a gap (laughs) so everything you know it's like someone just stopped the track and played another track rather than mixed them if you see what i mean so it felt like it was a much bigger change than it actually is (laughs)
2: does that make sense yeah 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 it does make sense absolutely and with the audience coming in and actually it's not just the audience though is it because i guess it's just the people who are participating and we've talked about like (laughs) warm-up sets right and the kind of i guess the what's the right term i guess the kind of underlying like etiquette is the term that you used actually i mean how much of the trampling of that kind of etiquette how much of it is bad i guess and how much of it is just totally fine this you know this
3: this makes for good for good chat on twitter and stuff which is all good fun but the, the 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 core of it is fuck etiquette who fucking cares you know if if a party goes off it goes off and uh, you know rules are literally there to be broken and you know if some young kid wants to come in and play 180 bpm from the start and it pisses everyone off but if the people that are that are dancing there are having a good time then fuck it you know it's fine <laughs> it wouldn't suit me but it, it yeah the etiquette's there to be broken the rules are there to be broken so fuck it i you know i'll I'll debate it all day on twitter and that'll be fun but you know in the end it doesn't matter
2: yeah i guess it's down to what works right it's down to what works and it's down to what
3: the people you know what if, if someone plays really hard in a warm-up set and no one's dancing then it's stupid <laughs> but <laughs> but you know it, if, if people are dancing if people are having fun then it really does not matter it doesn't matter if the dj is clanging it doesn't matter if the dj is playing different genres it, it literally doesn't matter if the people there are enjoying it that's it and, you know, the rest is the rest is just fucking chat.
2: OK, I mean, like, one of the things that I noticed coming back and programming lineups and, you know, putting like running orders together is how to kind of allow for that and how for allow for the kind of changing expectations of people in the audience. Like, I mean, I did a party like fairly close after opening and I don't promote often. But I mean, as you know, I kind of got the hang over the years of thinking about where to put djs in the in the context of a night, and you know thinking about the the party as a whole. and it re- really posed some challenges to me. and then watching it overnight, I realized I got certain things wrong and like because of these changing expectations, right? So I mean, how has that affected the way you put lineups together and put like running orders together?
3: it, it i haven't I haven't changed the way that I do things. I still program a night exactly the same. you know i'm 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 not <laughs> i I haven't changed. I still, I still kind of you know do it the same vibe. But normally with I Love Acid, um, it'll be me and the other residents, which is at the moment is Placid, who's our long term resident, and um, and John de Silva. And normally, like say, one of us will do the warm up, and one of us will do the closing set, and then the guests will get the 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 slots in the middle, and. I'll try and I'll try and program it so if I know that there's someone that plays generally harder and faster and someone that's a bit more chilled, I'll try and let the night build in the right way. But um, you know, that's that's still that's still the approach, and it's still pretty much um, me or, me or Placid warming up, headliners, and then me or Placid closing, and that's kind of the way that we do it. Yeah,
2: I think like if you are directly controlling the opening and the closing then that sort of maintains an element of continuity,
3: right? Yeah. Yeah. Because true. well it's it's um, you know it's it's our night. We, we
2: we set it out the way we want to <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. It's quite common for promoters to introduce new DJs via one of those slots though, I guess. So, oh yeah, I mean I and, do and I, I think- do
3: that as well. Like um the next um the next I love acid party in um in here in Glasgow, which is on um St Patrick's Day there's a there's a young lad who came down to the last couple of Isle of Acids that I was playing here and introduced himself and was dancing and chatting and stuff, um, and then he got in touch over social media, and he does his own little nights and he does his own music and stuff. So I reached out to him and said, "Do you want a warm up slot? Um, you know, come and come and you know get get involved in Isle of Acid." So you know, there's that. So he's kind of got the guest opening slot, and then. Um, and I've got the two main guests on in in the middle, and then I'm doing the closing slot. So it's kind of you know, there's there's that as well.
2: Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, I mean, how much of that has been good tip
3: there? If you want to get if you want to get booked to be at a party, go to the party first.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's a good bit of advice to aspiring DJs. Actually, same with labels. Actually, if you're sending your demos out to someone, probably make sure you know a bit about the label before you do that.
3: Oh uh. yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really at the moment. I don't really listen to demos that come in cold called because I've got so much stuff already prepped for the label and a lot of stuff already pressed. And I've got my kind of roster of artists that I want to work with at the moment. So I tend to speak to them to tell them what I want and get them to send it to me rather than doing that. But. If someone is going to cold call, send in a demo to the label, they need to know what the kind of stuff is that we do, and I want to be able to look at them and see that they've been doing radio shows, and they've been playing the music from the label, and they've been charting it or whatever, you know, just like, you know, get, you know, do get involved in something before you... Just want to be part of it, if you see what I mean.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that seems completely obvious, but the, the amount of people that don't do that is, it I mean, never ceases it's, it's, to make It's so
3: fucking obvious. I don't understand why people don't think about that. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> totally. don't, don't go and spend money on fucking Instagram adverts and stuff. Just, you know, <laughs> spend money on records.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay, I'm going to talk about the label, but before we go on to that, I wanted to ask you about, well, I mean, actually, I, want, actually, I wanted to ask you about Bang Face. Because, well, you, you kind of mention it in... You have mentioned it in interviews as being like, your favourite event. I've, I've
3: mentioned Bang Face a lot because yeah, it's right. fucking great. And
2: I've, I've never been to a Bang Face event, embarrassingly enough. You've never been to Bang Face? No. Jesus, so, man. It's I know. I, a,
3: <laughs> that's a rite of passage that every single person in dance music should do at least
2: once. Okay, tell me why.
3: Because it's just... It's the absolute best of our scene. It is all of the... All of the tropes, all of the ideas, all of the daftness completely not taking itself seriously and yet musically hugely diverse, everything from really big, serious, you know, cerebral acts to people playing donk with masks on. It's, it's everything in the scene in one place and it's, it is simultaneously not taking itself seriously and at the same time represents the best of everything. Okay. And it's fucking chaos. It's absolute <laughs> right. fucking chaos.
2: When was your first bang face experience? Oh, God, years ago. Um,
3: I got invited to uh, one of the bang faces at Electroworks. No, it might have even been at Traffic. Maybe ElectraWorks. Traffic in it was, it was, Shoreditch? Yes. Yeah, that was when they, that was where they first started. It might have been one of those, but it might have been Electroworks. I honestly can't remember because I was completely smashed. Um, but, uh... I think I think probably B12 were playing and they'd invited me to come along um and you know and there's a good example it's like you know you've got sort of B12 you know UK um intelligent techno fucking stalwarts playing and then I think on the same bill was like hellfish and producer and you know someone playing you know 190 bpm break core and stuff you know it's that it was that kind of chaos it was just and it was so much fun and so nice to go to something that was not taking itself seriously but yet at the same time really professionally done um and I just I fell in love with it straight away and I was begging James bangface to let me play for ages and ages, and he never did <laughs> until I think um I think Mark Archer invited me along to play with him at one point this is before I joined alternate and that was that was the first time I played um played a bang face probably as a gt rave crew i guess and i guess that must have been late 2000s okay because they moved they moved to doing the weekenders fairly quickly is that right well no i mean bang face has been going about as long as i love acid maybe a little bit longer so you know for a while you know we were kind of two similar type vibe nights you know outside of the popular circuit in london doing that kind of weird thing but then Bang Face started getting really big and yeah, I guess the the Weekenders started in like um, Camber Sands or something. I didn't go to the, the first couple of Weekenders that were down south. I went to them once they moved to Pontins in Stockport. Um, I, I Honestly, I can't remember the years because they all blur into each other. I mean, the thing is, is you, you're you just not sober at Bang Face <laughs> right. at all. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I played a, a bunch of them in um stockport quite a few years running um there was one year where there was a block weekend and bang face, bang face weekend was literally the week after and i think me and luke viber and cfax were the only people on both lineups and there was not enough time to recover from block <laughs> to, to then get to bang face
2: <laughs> yeah uh that sounds. I've been to Block, but I never went to never went to Bangface. I mean, just it just sounds a oh, I mean, bit
3: Block is, Bangface bang is another level. If, okay. If, if if Block, if honestly, if Block is Accrington Stanley, Bangface was fucking Barcelona. Really? Okay. Okay. I, honestly, it's just it's just another level of kind of chaos and, and you know, it's just so much fun. It's the best.
2: So you mentioned Alternate there. Like, how did you end up joining Alternate? Uh so
3: Mark Mark came to play well weirdly the first ever post human gig I did back in 1999 was supporting alternate but I didn't really meet them uh it was just it, it's just a coincidence and then um when I started I Love Acid um Mark was someone that I got in touch with and asked to come and do an alternate show um, at uh, because I I loved alternate um, at um, at Isle of Acid. But he wasn't able to use the name alternate that much at that point. There was still kind of weirdness of whether he had rights to the name or not. So he would come and he would play as Mark Archer, brackets, alternate, if you see what I mean. And he he played a loads of shows and, you know, we became friends. Um, And uh, we worked on a few... Like I would I would engineer on some tracks for him here and there and we released a bunch of his music, particularly the the stuff that he'd written as Alternate that he'd written entirely himself and then re-released it as Mark Archer on vinyl so there were new copies about. And then um, ended up in this conversation with Neil Rushton from Network Records um, who basically said, actually, you do have the rights to the name Alternate because it, you know... Various things because there was kind of a legal battle going on between Mark and the other member Chris, who'd they'd split in like nineteen ninety four, um. So Mark was actually able to start recording as Alternate again, um, and he just needed somebody to do to be in the other suit during live shows. Um, so I I wore the other suit and we would do live shows to you know I I wasn't in the band I was just you know the the a live a, the live act if you see what I mean. I guess I did that for about five years i think we did our last one just at bang face just before COVID, and now mark's doing it and i think there's someone else in the other suit and there was someone else in the other suit before me as well in the in the late 90s as well when there was a little bit there because essentially mark is
2: alternate, but you need two people for the live show sure okay so the label you just mentioned there um putting out his stuff what has been your approach to it? I mean, I guess it mean like bulk and vinyl, I mean, clues in the name, right? Like, everything <laughs> basically is on vinyl. But I mean, like, how has it changed? Yeah,
3: well, it, I mean, everything originally was always going to be on vinyl. I've actually done a load of digital tape and tape stuff since. So it's called bulk and vinyl, but there's actually loads that isn't on vinyl now, which is stupid. But, um, so, I, I basically I wanted to start a new record label um, after I left Seed. This is in like two thousand and nine, I guess, and I had this idea of um, I. I'd, someone had sent me. This is you got to. This is like really early days of social media, and so viral posts were still being sent to you by email with attachments. If you see what I mean. And Someone had sent me a load of photographs of these amazing statues in like fucking um, the Balkan states, and they were really cool,' it was kind of weird statues and architecture type stuff. so i'd um I'd gone, oh, you know what? I'm gonna do a series of records and I'll use the artwork of these, and I'll do six different records and get loads of different people to do them. And digital was still not really a massive thing at that point, so I decided to include CDs with the vinyl that would then have the digital versions of the tracks. So you'd still be able to rip them and play them on your computer, but you get the record with it, you see, because you you didn't really have download codes that much at that point. And I'd been told about this brand new website called Bandcamp that you could host your own shop and your own digital files on and and sell. It had like just been launched a, a couple of months beforehand or something. Um, and loads of people were still taking the piss out of it because they like, thought it was a stupid name. Bandcamp, uh, the same way people used to take the piss out of Fruity Loops. So so I started this thing and I, I registered the website name and got distributor assorted sorted and stuff. And then these bloody photographs went like viral on Facebook and everyone was posting oh, right, them. Okay. And I got really embarrassed and I thought, I don't want everyone to think that I've just found <laughs> these <laughs> these things on Facebook. <laughs> So I I changed all my plans and instead I did the five uh, six different colours. Um, but the name Balkan obviously stuck because I'd already set it out. So the name of the label actually has no relation to anything. It's like it's like stu- a stupid
2: mistake. <laughs> okay. Got it. So how much of this was to re- release your own music? Like how much of that was motivation? Um. Oh,
3: uh, I mean I, I think on the first six records there's only two or three post human tracks there's like one one on the number 6 and there's a remix on on a couple of the others so but then the first then the then did post human album on Balkan not long after that so it was you know it was it, it's our label so we release our music on it but it was also just cuz i i like releasing music of people i guess you know, I, I, people would send me these tracks and and it was just like that. So, you know, again, there's no kind of, no plan or anything. Just, you know, things all just kind of fall into place haphazardly.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bandcamp like, it's a pretty amazing platform. I mean, we only started using it relatively well, quite a bit later, actually, that it started. So you were on it from basically day one, by the sound of things.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm,
2: I'm what you'd call an early adopter. <laughs> so I mean, how? Okay, I mean, how important was was it to getting the label going? I mean, I've C- talked... completely. To- it was, you know, it yeah. it, it Bandcamp band is absolutely
3: fundamental to to um to everything I do. I mean, if you so if you look at bulk vinyls. Um, Spotify count for instance there's, they're, they're pretty low our stuff doesn't tend to do so well on there and you know our social media numbers aren't very big so for l intensive purposes anyone looking in from the outside um, it looks like not much of a label because everyone perceives everything from fucking social media numbers now but um, the label is, has managed to sell out 50 odd records in a row and we've got a really great core following and i try and look after the customers and i'm always trying to do little daft things to make it a community um and it really works it's just it's just not on the radar of everyone else if you see what i mean
2: yeah absolutely so um how much in terms of like selling vinyl like how much of the sales go through Bandcamp, and how much are going through shops he says
3: um i, I mean like realistically i could probably do them all on bandcamp um but if i did that then there wouldn't be um it wouldn't be contributing back to the scene if you see what i mean it it becomes quite an insular thing so what i tend to do is i tend to split it about 50 50 i mean it depends normally if i say if i press 300 records i might do 200 on bandcamp and give 100 to the distributor um and the distributor, the, they buy them at cost price, so I don't really make any money off that. But then those go to shops, and the shops can make a bit of money, and the the artists are then getting their music spread out to other places and um, found by other people and stuff. And you know, and then if we do have a big release, we have those relationships with those shops. They know who the label is. So I kind of think it's a it's a responsibility really to kind of contribute to the the whole lifeblood of the scene you know it's it's there is a collective thing you can't just operate yourself as an island if you see what i mean um but it doesn't it doesn't really make financial sense
2: but i'm not generally a very good businessman so right that um so yeah i mean like it absolutely makes sense to support the scene in that kind of a way and i guess that's where underground music differs from kind of i don't know mainstream or whatever like you don't have any sort of responsibility towards a retailer if you're selling pop music right it's just like the it's just not part of the equation but you know record shops yeah
3: but with dance music you do You, you you are you know we are we are all responsible for this scene if the record shops go and if the distributors go then you know then we're fucked because so often they're linked with the promoters and with the venues and with people discovering, you know, it's a, it, it is a community, you know, you have to be part of it.
2: Yeah. And I guess those sorts of, um, networks are something that you have to, I don't know. I'm just thinking like, linking it back to, you know, the changing nature of the audience and audience expectations. And I guess like etiquette is sort of part of that. Right. I mean, obviously it's a, it's a different kind of etiquette. Um, but having that sense of responsibility um, is important, right? Yeah, I I, I
3: totally agree. There's the one thing that really fucking bugs me at the moment about um, a lot of stuff within dance music is the kind of hustle mentality where everything is in a focus on how you look after yourself and how you make money out of things and you've got to grind to do this and it's all this kind of really weird self Focus, you know, and it which almost has more, more in common with fucking people trading money and commodities, and you know that kind of shit. You know, it, it, the language is almost the same language as people talking about fucking crypto stocks on bloody, you know, Twitter and Instagram. I really fucking hate that mentality. You know, it, it it's uh, it's a really weird, toxic thing, and it does my nothing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, how do you think... Um, how do you think is... Well, what do you think is the best way of kind of fighting back against that? Because it's very easy to sit here as older guys who've been around the block a few times um, yeah. and complain yeah, the, about the, stuff. The,
3: the, world doesn't, the world doesn't need some more old men fucking commenting about stuff on the internet, it? Does it, it doesn't, but also... <laughs> yeah, we're here and we keep doing it. I mean... I'll 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 whinge on Twitter and all that kind of stuff, but you know most of my energy really is just uh, you know I, I I buy music, I share music, um, I try and I try and read magazines and blogs and share them. I tra- chart stuff, you know. I, I I just try and I just try and be involved, and you know I release music by other people and put on parties. You know, it, it's it's really that's that's all the kind of there is to it really. Just. I, I think that the fundamental thing is, is if you if everything you do is um, broadcast of yourself, then you're doing it wrong.
2: Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with that general approach and and you know the kind of mentality that goes with it. I mean, you know, going back to something I said at the very start about having like feeling ownership over something. I mean, that, that what I said when I said that we're talking about techno in particular, but I guess if you're thinking about I guess much more like underground music more generally, right? Like, do you feel like the sense of responsibility to try and influence new people coming into it? Um, wow. okay, yeah, I guess, I guess so. I mean, I,
3: so there was something that, um, I was talking to when I, I did an interview with Harold, um, for DJ Mag a while back, and we talked, uh, a little bit about this kind of thing. There was, um, Someone said to me once, "Be the person that you needed." Um, As in, think back to when you were young. What kind of person did you really need? And if you now have the opportunity to be that person, now be that person. So I I try to I try to think back um, when I was starting out and didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing. um, What would have been really useful? And who who which which of those people were you know that that helped me out? How can I mimic them now um you know i think about people like um simon russell from rough trade who really early on helped us out with post-human you know was like good advice and connected us with people and um you know there was no there was nothing for him to gain by helping us but he did it anyway and so i try to emulate that now if i'm ever in a position to do it for other people which i'm not all the time because i'm just a I'm, I'm not a fucking you know rich um, big promoter with, you know, huge resources. I'm just, I mean, I'm a fucking guy still stamping records on the kitchen table. But, uh, you know, I try and do what I can.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, that's at a very individual level. And I suppose that's, I mean, that's an answer to the question, right? Um, I mean, as in terms of, like, doing what you can to influence things, from your position right so do you i mean i guess like the kind of wider question is like how much of underground music is necessarily influenced in that kind of a way you know like i mean how I mean, obviously it's a i guess it's a kind of person-to-person mentality right the way these things are uh, passed on
3: i think a, a lot a lot of it is there's there's a lot of people like me out there if you look at all of the kind of the little little vinyl labels and the little crews that run a a party out of a shop that they work in part time and you know all that kind of stuff, there is the the world is still full of these little networks, little local networks of of independent people doing stuff, whether they're running a little ra- radio station out of their town and, and putting people on or or what have you. Um, there's there's lots of people like me out there. Um, and they make up kind of the the bedrock of all of the scene, and then all the big stuff floats on top of that, really. Um, but uh, the idea, the the underground, I think, still does exist in that way, and I actually think it's it's quite a big scene, really. But it's just lots and lots of smaller smaller parts.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. So. <sighs> Yeah, we've just been talking about like the sense of like I guess feeling responsibility towards underground music and the nature of underground music. So, I mean, do you think that actually? No, uh, what a question I wanted to ask was where do you think in Europe or actually just the world generally, like where is the strongest underground scene? Would you say for this? I mean, for focusing on electronic stuff. You know, i I wouldn't.
3: I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to claim knowledge of it because there's going to be stuff happening thats that I'm oblivious to. Um, I mean, the, the, the things that are, are noticeable for me, for the kind of music that I do and the people that I'm working with and stuff, is um, the USA is absolutely kicking off again now, um, really, really... I'm really impressed with uh, a lot of the, the, the crews that are coming out of the States at the moment. I think um, I think the USA is really... For a long time, we dismissed all of everything in the USA as being all the EDM stuff and being a bit cheesy, but there are so many fucking amazing underground scenes in the USA, and I think they're really coming into their own at the moment. Um, and I'm... Like which cities? I mean, all over. Obviously, you know, it, it's, it's obviously, you know... The big ones were in New York and L.A. and Chicago and stuff. But there's stuff happening all over the place in in New Orleans and down in... I mean, I had a fucking amazing gig in Louisville, Tennessee just recently. There's uh, stuff going... There's amazing venues, stuff kicking off in Denver and Portland. You know, I think the USA is really... um, really booting back off again now but that's that's just you know that's just what i'm aware of there'll be stuff happening in europe that i'm completely oblivious of that's probably fucking incredible you know there's probably stuff happening in in asia and china and india as well that i'm just not aware of you know i'm just
2: like a fucking you know idiot middle-aged guy in scotland i don't know i don't fucking know well i mean that's the nature of underground scenes right i mean you can't possibly know
3: yeah well you, you quite often you don't hear about them until they until they become yeah. big yeah absolutely <laughs> and by then you've
2: missed by then you've missed the magic yeah you missed the best part <laughs> straight up <laughs> okay last question give me some dj mixes that you like give me some uh dj sets that were influential on you
3: i'm not I'm, I'm not really the that person that has that big collection of dj sets that i listen to i tend i tended to listen to to albums and and you know tracks that way so you know dj sets would i would listen to them when i went out to clubs and stuff and i mean i you know i had i had tapes of like you know sasha at chaos and stuff when i was a kid you know and you know stuff from like hell to Nights and and what have you and then I remember in the late '90s, people started putting on bloody Renaissance mixes and all that kind of stuff. But I, I was never the person that collected DJ mixes.
2: That wasn't my thing. I liked, I liked tracks. I had mixtapes. I mean, a, a question then that poses itself relates to like electronic albums, dance albums. I guess sometimes that dance music, specifically as opposed to just electronic music, doesn't fit too easily into the album format but I mean well I think that people don't write for the album format so much anymore
3: I mean if if you look at the last couple of post-human albums then they're dancey the the, the dancey ones like Requiem for a Rave and Mutant City Acid they are dancey tracks and you could play most of them in the club or at least you know at least half of them Um, but the albums are themed and they're designed to be listened to in a particular order Um, and all of the kind of albums that of my youth that mean a huge amount to me, I like that. I mean, fucking Brown album by Orbital. You could play every single one of those tracks in a club and they would absolutely smash it. And yet that album is designed to be listened to. It has a story, you know, it has a continuity to it. Um, Albums like UF Orb and stuff, you know, are are similar. So, you know, I I don't... I think that maybe a lot of people just think that dance music albums end up being collections of stuff, but I love it when people write... uh, write an album that has a theme that has a story to it i think that's that's the way to go
2: yeah i mean the, the orbital brown album is just m- one of my favorite pieces of music generally ever really it's fucking amazing it's you know and it is it, it, it i mean it, you know it almost you're talking
3: about dj mixes it almost feels like a dj mix that whole bit you know through the lushes through to impact
2: and stuff it's like you just fucking you just put that on and dance all the way through yeah absolutely cool man well this has been great thanks so much for doing it I appreciate it Okay, Josh from Post Human. Interesting conversation. We covered some ground that I wasn't expecting in that. It was great to get those stories from the early 2000s electro kind of techno crossover scene, which I participated in a little bit, not much at all, though, as you probably would have noticed. And it sounds like I had a really good time at those parties. Yeah, fair play. Doing a party in Oldrich Station must have been fun. A lot of fun, in fact. Right, so we're back on schedule. There might be another podcast this week. If you're a Patreon member, then you will be getting bonus stuff this week too. Been a bit quiet on that recently, but we're back in the game on the bonus stuff in a big way. So if you want to join us on Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash official is the way to do it. And if you don't, that's also good. Just leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. That also helps, genuinely does help. So do that, please. We would be very, very grateful if you would do that. Follow the Spotify playlist, link in the show notes and join us on the discord hotflushrecordings.com slash discord to join that discord server we would love to see you there okay I've gonna make up for talking way too much in the intro by cutting out now so thanks for listening this was fun and I'll see you same time same place next week on the next episode of the not a diving podcast thank you
1: Let's go there.